it's easy to think, hey, I'm just going to add this person who's unlike me to my team. But you have to consider all of the work it takes in you and in your organizational culture to create an environment where those people can thrive. Yeah. To take it out of like the organizational leadership context, I think of it for any relationship or friendships or a a marriage. It's like, yes, I want to go have a spouse. Well, do you want to do the hard work it takes to maintain that relationship? Or, hey, I want these people to be my friends. Are you willing to do the work to cultivate an authentic relationship with those people? It's the same thing when it comes to diversifying our organizations. What are we willing to do? How are we willing to change, to adapt, to actually serve people who are not practiced at serving? Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an entrepreneur, a CEO, a nonprofit director, a community leader, or just an incredible person who's trying to make a positive impact not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Bethany Wilkinson. She is a writer, leader, and social entrepreneur who has dedicated more than a decade to exploring the intersections of community, racial justice, and social change. Bethany began her career as co-founder of Atlanta Harvest, a high production development farm on a mission to create jobs and strengthen economies in disadvantaged communities. She then founded G-Race Dialogues, a faith and community-based initiative designed to support individuals and organizations pursuing racial reconciliation. Bethany expanded her research and broadened her reach after joining the team at Plywood People, a nonprofit in Atlanta, leading a community of startups doing good. As part of her work in diversity and cultural change, Bethany is an invited speaker at major conferences and top global companies. She is also the host of the popular podcast, The Diversity Gap, and is the founder of the Diversity Gap Academy, an online learning platform for leaders seeking to pair their good intentions for diversity with true cultural change. Bethany and I had such a great conversation. We have a lot in common as we are both homesteaders, so we talk a lot about that. And she just has such an incredible insight into what it looks like to really make true cultural change when it comes to diversity. I know that all of you are going to learn something from this episode. So without further ado, on to my conversation with Bethany Wilkinson. Bethany, welcome to the show. I'm so honored to have you here. Thank you for being here. Of course. I'm so excited for our conversation. I'm so excited about this. Now, obviously, there is uh, so much about you and your work and uh, so many things that I want to get into. I'm going to have you give us the Bethany 101, all of that in a minute. But there's something I have learned about you in my light to moderate internet stalking that um, I just we just have to talk about it first because uh, it's very top of mind for me. It's a big thing that we have in common. And that is you are a homesteader. <gasps> I knew you were going to mention I that. No. Yeah. So and I, yes. we also uh, are homesteaders. We live on a small farm here in North Carolina. And uh, there's just something about the homesteading community and people who homestead who there's this like kinship. <laughs> Totally. So uh, tell me first about your homesteading journey. Like when did you guys kind of decide that this was something that you wanted to do? When did you guys start? All that. Absolutely. Great question. I love it. We could just talk about homesteading the whole time because I want to learn from you. (laughs) (laughs) So gosh, so my husband and I, we met at a garden center. We both worked at this organic garden center and um, selling plants and like designing and installing gardens for elementary schools and And so I think we always knew that it would be a part of our story. And 
predating us being a couple and then, you know, getting married and all those things. I grew up on a farm. So I grew up in middle Georgia. Yeah. in a pretty small town. And every, I just think of my dad, who was kind of the driving force for all of our farming escapades. And it started out small. You know, we had like one acre with a few chickens and then we got, you know, more acreage. And now we have like alpacas and pigs and (laughs) goats and all the things. And now there there's more acreage. And so, yeah, it's just kind of, it's in my story. And as I do more research, even knowing my family, like my own family's research, I'm realizing that, oh, both of my, my paternal grandfather and my maternal grandfather, they were both farmers. And so Mm. I'm realizing that this is a legacy I've inherited. And my husband and I, again, met at this garden center, love gardening, love farming. He's still a farmer. That's what he does. He's an organic farmer full-time. And, um, and then we, I guess, I, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, we bought this beautiful acre of land and decided to build a house because I did not enjoy shopping for a house. So I was like, mm-hmm. let's just build one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we just finished it. So yeah, it's, it's been fun. That is so cool. I love that you talked about how there's this like a legacy of this in your family and uh, how powerful that is. That is, I mean, granted, I'll be honest, like, I don't know a ton of my like family history. I don't think that's really like much in my family history. Um, I come from like Irish Catholics. So, you know, I was like, oh, maybe my Irish uh, ancestors were farmers. Who knows? But yeah, it's I think the the power of legacy and uh, and familial legacy and and sort of that being called to the, the to tend to the land, um, mm-hmm. I think is so powerful. Um, and it's yeah, like, like I said, it just it creates this community uh, of people. It's like when you meet somebody who who also is like a farmer or homesteader, it's like it's like, a, what's up? I know. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I know what your lifestyle looks like. Um, so you guys just finished your house. What do you guys have on your homestead currently? Like what's your what's your current homestead status? Yes, great question. So it's funny. So we lived down the street from my parents and we were at my Aww. parents while, yeah, while our home was being constructed. So all of our chickens are actually at my mom and dad's house because we haven't built the coop on our house yeah. yet. But we have our greenhouse. We have lots of seeds. We have lots of um, like a meadowy, yeah, almost like a meadowy herb garden, but it's not really a garden. It's not tended to, it's just there. And we have lots of herbs and we do lots of creating medicines and things like that. So that's what we have currently. Um, But we're hoping to really double down on our veggie production next year or getting into, you know, the spring of 2022, because honestly, the home construction process took all of our creative energy and we didn't have time to farm and and build our house. Yeah, it's a lot. People don't realize like how much work it goes into one, the home construction process, or I mean, we didn't build a house, but we did a renovation on our house. Uh And that was uh, a lot. Um, We have friends that are building a house right now. And it is like it consumes them. (laughs) Like it is just like everything is they have meetings at their house for like two hours hours a day, I feel like. <laughs> but that is amazing. Uh, do you have like, what are your kind of like long term visions for the homestead? What do you guys hope to do uh, in the future with it? Yes. Yeah, so we hope to do so many things. I mean, definitely, you know, being able to be self-sufficient in a way, you know, yep. I mean, we're on a well, we, we could get solar panels one day, maybe yeah. um, to be able to, of course, grow all of our food. I'd love to get a cow and a horse, but we only have one acre. So I don't think we can, we have space for both of those. We'll see, but a Jersey cow for milking, um, or chickens. And then I just want to be able to invite people out to experience rest and disconnection from the hustle of the city and to find peace and flourishing and restoration with the land. And I also really love 
herbs and herbalism and, and medicine making. And so to be able to experience wellness through what nature has to offer is also a big passion of mine and my husband. So oh, I love this so much. We really are like, we have so much in common. Yeah, I talk yeah. to you about this all day. Um, I won't take up any more of your time uh, regardless. I, I mean, yes, I, I, I echo so many of those senti- sentiments. So our, uh, we named our farm Sela Farm. And uh, Sela, uh, for those that don't know, is a word that appears in the book of Psalms and a couple times in the book of Habakkuk. And it it basically, I mean, it's a lot of scholars have said it's lost its its true meaning um, over time and lost its its true meaning through translation. But what they can best kind of surmise, I guess, is the is the word is that it means to rest, to pause, to reflect. And that was something that, just like you said, like we wanted to do with our farm and and to be able to. Uh, for ourselves to rest and reflect and pause and and have peace out here, but to also welcome other people in that process. And so uh, I relate to that vision and that dream so much. So I love it. I cannot wait uh, to just continue to follow your homesteading journey because it's it's so fun. I I have Mm. loved following other homesteaders on Instagram. I feel like it's just like the best community ever. And I get to so watch inspiring. I get to watch people like like uh, this one homesteader I follow, like their dairy cow just had a calf yesterday and I was very invested. Um, it's yeah, it's a whole thing. So uh, we could very clearly talk about this all day. So but let's <laughs> let's transition a little bit and talk about who you are. So give us the Bethany 101. Tell us who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are today. Sure, sure. Well, I am definitely a homesteader as you've covered, but I am, I'm a facilitator. I am a racial justice educator. I am a champion of organizations and leaders who are seeking to align their values for diversity and racial justice with their, with their practices, their policies, the cultures they're creating on their teams. And so um, I spend a good bit of time talking to leaders and talking with organizations and coaching teams on how to create organizations that can be more supportive of diverse groups of people. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, I just, after I finished that thought, I was like, oh, how did I get to that? (laughs) Well, that was going to be my next question was what led you to that? What, what created that passion within you and, and also gave you the, the skill set to really, uh, to do it in, in such an effective way. Yeah. So I ended up in this work, really just putting one foot in front of the other and doing what I could to be of support to my communities at the time. And I don't know that I, like when I think of my time in college or even prior, I don't remember there being a moment where I said, Hey, I'm going to go do this with organizations. It was more so, Hey, I'm a part of this organization. I have this training. I studied education and sociology in college. And so I'm in theology after that. And so I'm like, I have this training. I'm a part of these churches and these nonprofits that don't have the language or the perspective to engage issues of racial injustice in ways that are robust and authentic and sustainable. So let me fill this gap because I can. Um, and so I did that for a few years, specifically working with my church and um, and with other nonprofits in the city. And then in my most recent full-time role, I was working with a nonprofit that supported social entrepreneurs. And one of the gaps that many of those social entrepreneurs was facing was, hey, how do we how do we deal with this racial injustice thing? How do we like learn about other people without making them feel tokenized? How do we, Mm. how do we do this thing? How do we close this gap? And so I initiated the diversity gap, which is now a book and a podcast. Um, I initiated, yes. um, So I initiated research for the diversity gap as a project to help myself better understand the gap between our good intentions for diversity and the impact, but to also ultimately help other people understand it. And then hopefully 
lead in new ways. Oh, that's so cool. And I love how uh, you kind of found yourself in this position where you saw this need and then you had a skill set that basically filled that need. And uh, I love entrepreneurs, um, business owners, uh, and leaders who do that and do that well and do it in a way where they're like, I really want to to fill that gap, so to speak. And there you are, the diversity gap. Um, yeah, you like you said, you have a, a podcast, you um, have a book, which is awesome. Congratulations. Uh, I know that writing a book is such a massive undertaking. Um, so congratulations on that. I'd like I'm giving you like my standing ovation <laughs> round of applause. Um, for birthing a book baby, because that's it's it's a big deal. Um, so as you began to fill in that gap, and as you began to work with some of these organizations, what were some of the challenges that a lot of these organizations were facing that were kind of a common thread among them? Yeah, I would say the biggest common thread, gosh, there are many challenges, but one of the biggest was that Many leaders in the face of like a racial crisis or a big, you know, race related issue in the news, their go to action would be, let me diversify my team. Mm -hmm. Let me diversify my board. And while that intention was really powerful and positive and perhaps even effective and good, what leaders weren't considering was, hey, does my organizational culture actually support people who have a different cultural perspective than my own? Do I have policies and processes to hold space for the humanity and dignity of people who I don't have actually in my life, you know? And so I think that was the big gap. It's like people think that just adding, you know, more diverse racially, like in a variety of ways, there's lots of kinds of diversity. It's easy to think, hey, I'm just going to add this person who's unlike me to my team, but you have to consider all of the work it takes in you and in your organizational culture to create an environment where those people can thrive. Yeah. To take it out of like the organizational leadership context, I think of it for any relationship or friendships or a a, a marriage. It's like, yes, I want to go have a spouse. Well, do you want to do the hard work it takes to maintain that relationship? Or, hey, I want these people to be my friends. Are you willing to do the work to cultivate an authentic relationship with those people? It's the same thing when it comes to diversifying our organization. What are we willing to do? How are we willing to change to adapt to actually serve people who are not practiced at serving? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great perspective. And uh, I love that you kind of talk about that, that sustainability aspect and which made me just kind of think of, um, and I'd love for you to just share your expertise and, and kind of perspective on this, um, because I think this is something that um, can get lost in the discussions that we see in the media. And the media, as we all know, just loves to like, just just hop on whatever is like the hot topic at the time. And, uh, you know, something will happen in the news and then it just dominates the news. And then everybody has this like knee jerk reactionary thing to like make themselves feel better. And it's just like, well, I'm doing something because I posted a black square on Instagram or whatever it is when that doesn't actually create sustainable change. And so you get all these people that just like get all riled up by the media and then and then eventually something else comes along and then the news cycle dies out and you know there we go from there um so i'd love for you to just kind of share like what are some of the things that in your experience and and just 
basically in your own like lived experience, but also in your own like experience kind of doing this in a professional um, sense. What are some of the things that you wish, like if you kind of had like this magic wand <laughs> to to create a, an environment where that's not how it is, where it's not the the conversation around diversity and racial reconciliation, all those kinds of things are driven by the people and not by like media hype and the kinds yeah. of things that actually create long-term lasting sustainable change and and facilitate that that growth in relationships and all those sorts of things. I realize that's like a very heavy loaded question, but it's just something sure. that I think is so important for us to have conversations about because in so many ways we let this conversation get dominated by whatever's happening on the news. Yes, that can definitely happen, especially if you aren't living, if you're not experiencing the harmful effects of racism, it is very easy to turn it on and off. I think about the way I break it down in my own mind, and maybe this will be helpful to the listeners, is I think of it like an iceberg. And so if you Mm. have an iceberg at the tip of the iceberg, what you see is diversity. So that is, you know, the pictures that are on the website or the faces that you see on the board or the black square on Instagram. It's the stuff that you can see, you can count, you can measure. Mm -hmm. And for many people, because it's so obvious and visible, that's where they start. And then for some people, that's where they stop. It's like, what can we see above the water? But for those of us who are seeking actual transformation, the invitation is for us to go deeper into the iceberg. And so if you get a little bit deeper underneath the water, I would say underneath diversity, you have reconciliation. So you have practices and habits around building meaningful cross-cultural relationships, around practicing authenticity, around understanding your own cultural and social location and what that means for others. You're really doing a lot of the interpersonal work to make the diversity you see above the water sustainable. Mm. But then if if you want to go even deeper... I say at the base of that iceberg is where we're starting to talk about liberation from oppressive systems in general. And so we're asking, how was this entire thing designed and who is benefiting from these systems and who is not benefiting and what's our history and who has the power? And you're asking completely different questions when you're at the base of the iceberg. And the tricky thing in a performative culture like ours, um, where where we are only really where our value is so tied to what people can see. What's tricky is that the work of actual healing and the work Mm -hmm. of actual liberation is so deep that no one can see it. Oftentimes it tends to be really personal. It's what's happening, you know, with your bank account, with conversations with friends. It's, it's not this shiny stuff that you see on the internet. And it's really difficult um, for some of us to sustain work that we're not being applauded for, Mm -hmm. I think. And so And that goes for all of us in a lot of different ways. And so I would say to anyone who is thinking about, hey, I want this for myself. I want this for others. Like, think about it. Where am I in my process? Am I just in this diversity piece at the top of the iceberg? Is that getting a lot of my energy? If so, how can I continue to deepen? And then how do I... How do I sustain when nobody's patting me on the back for it? That's Mm. the really tricky part. Mm. Oh, that's good. And man, you're right. That is something that can really be applied to so many aspects of our lives is how do you create those sustainable habits, those sustainable, um, make those, those changes that nobody can see. I mean, I obviously, I come to uh, looking at, at all things through the lens of uh, faith and um, like as uh, a lens of, of being a Christian. And, and I, you know, one of the things that I always think about is when Jesus says, like, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And like, and the importance of that and how that applies to so many things. And, um, but that 
in that, like you said, we live in a performative culture where like people want to get pats on the back and comments on Instagram, like you're just so awesome. And people, people want that. (laughs) But that isn't what necessarily creates that lasting change. So I know that one of the things that you specifically work with you know, with organizations is helping organizational cultures, you know, participate and create in an organizational culture where people from various racial backgrounds can grow in their purpose. And you're creating that change down at the bottom level that then affects the rest of the iceberg. Talk to us about that. And what does that look like? Yes. So organizational culture, I mean, there's a lot of people who do a lot of work around culture specifically that I think are really excellent. When I think about culture, I think about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves, like who are our heroes? Who's the villain? Who's the victim? Um, I think about um, the, like the histories that we all come from, you know, you mentioned being descended from Irish Catholics and I'm a descendant of, you know, African-American people in the South and how those stories and ways of being affect how we lead and how we show up in the world. Um, But what I really love to do for organizations is to break it down into values Mm. and values. I love Patrick Lencioni's definition. He says that values are the way that you behave. And so um, how are you showing up at work in your office? What are are your values? What are you prioritizing? And um, a lot of excellent researchers have done a good bit of work around the values of a supremacy culture. Um, So those are values where certain kinds of people are elevated above others or where they have historical dominance in a particular society. So what are the values that underpin a supremacy culture? And then what I try to do in my book is unpack the values of a liberating culture. So if in a supremacy culture, you know, there there's a value for being defensive and protecting what's always been. If there's a value for perfectionism and a, a fear of making mistakes, if there is, and many of these values are often unstated. You have to kind of be around for a while to mine yeah. out if they're happening, but maybe it's a value of um, either or thinking as a cultural value. It's yeah. either this way or that way. There's nothing in between. Those values tend to maintain a culture where um, groups of people can maintain dominance. A liberating culture, however, it, it values different things. So what would it look like to value practice over perfection, where mm. perfection isn't the goal, but being on a learning journey is the goal? And um, what would it look like to value centering marginalized perspectives? And so instead of saying, hey, I'm the boss, I'm the leader, I know everything, what would it look like to say, actually, I'm not an expert in everyone's experience. I need to learn from someone else. So I, I really try to do this work around helping leaders think through, okay, what are the values of a supremacy culture that are functioning? How can we disrupt those? And what is another way? What's a what's perhaps a better or more creative way? One of the values of a liberating culture is imagination. So how do we step back and literally dream of a new way to do our work? There are different ways for us to be in the world, but sometimes it takes someone to introduce you to them to consider what it looks like for you, your community, and your organization. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with Bethany to thank our partner of the show, and that is Mama Suds. Now, you know, I love Mama Suds. The head mama, Michelle Smith, has been on the show before. They have been a partner of mine for a long time. I use their products every single day. They're incredible. Mama Suds helps label reading moms like me, like you, and hey, dads too, create a safe and non-toxic home for their family by creating synthetic free household cleaners. One of their incredible cleaners is the Mama Suds Fine Linen Soap, which is the best thing since sliced bread. You can wash your high quality sheets, linens, delicates, and organic fabrics with a fine linen soap to keep them looking newer and softer longer. 
All you have to do is use three to four capfuls for high efficiency machines on a delicate cycle or four to six capfuls for regular machines on a delicate cycle. Head on over to mamasuds.com and use the code MOLLY for 15% off your order. Now back to my conversation with Bethany Wilkinson. One of the things that you said that really just kind of struck me and I think is um, because I think so many people can relate to some of those things and being in organizations or in a company or in a church or in a nonprofit or, or in a you know friendship group where all of those things can be like cyclical. But one of the things you said was that the value, um, the unspoken value of like the fear of making mistakes. And I think that that our fear, I mean, fear can control us in so many ways that is is harmful. But our fear, when we have a fear of making mistakes or we're in a culture or a community where we fear making mistakes, then that in so many ways inhibits growth and inhibits change. And I think especially kind of going back to what we were saying earlier when we were talking about, you know, the influence that, um, you know, the media can have on some of these conversations rather than having these conversations amongst people in real life, like, you know, having a conversation with your neighbor, your friend, your, you know, (laughs) your cousin, whatever it is, and how our fear of like asking the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or fear of like unintentionally offending somebody or, or whatever it is, like our fear of like, quote unquote, making a mistake inhibits us from like putting ourselves in a position to say, I don't know, am I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to screw this up and I might say something wrong. And, you know, obviously the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So like, what's the impact of the, my good intentions? And and did I have a bad one, but how do I learn from that in a constructive way? And so I I would love to know, because I know that there are so many people that are listening. This is something that I have openly admitted that I've struggled with in the past, um, is that fear of like, oh gosh, did I ask the wrong thing? Oh no. Did I say the wrong thing? When it's just like, no, just acknowledge, Hey, at the beginning, like, Hey, white lady over here. Like, (laughs) just like, I'm not trying to like hide who I am. Like I, you know, but I'm, I'm doing my best and I want to learn. And so I'm going to probably screw up and I might put my foot in my mouth sometimes. And I'm going to be like, you know what? Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know better, but now I know better and I'm going to do better. And we're going to learn from this and creating an environment where we can all be like that. And I realize again, that's kind of a very broad sense, but what are some of the things that you would maybe say to somebody who is listening, who struggles with that, that and has that value of fear of making mistakes and saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, asking the wrong question? Yeah. Well, the truth is that you will say the wrong thing Yeah, and you will do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And the real work is, so after you get over that hump of like showing up, saying the thing, doing the thing, I find that the real work is being willing to really receive the feedback. Mm-hmm. Because if you show up and you know, hey, I have good intentions, I said this thing, and now this person is telling me that I did it all wrong, all of the defense mechanisms pop up yep. and we tend to shut down. And I think that cultivating a practice of staying open enough to actually receive what might be really painful feedback or to have the um, the capacity to let yourself be misunderstood. I would say that's where the real work lies because that defensiveness is so easy for many of us in a lot of different things. But when it comes to race specifically, if you are a white person or a white woman listening, it's like, hey, okay, yeah, you said the thing, you did the work, you showed up, and now you feel like you're being shut down or you, ca- you were completely oh, misunderstood. Yeah. It's like, 
that's where the work begins. That's yeah. the beginning yeah. um, of the work that you have to do to keep growing in this conversation. One of my good friends, um, she co-facilitates workshops with me a lot. She's a white woman from South Carolina and she's incredible. One of my best friends. And she talks about how early on in her journey, she, what she had to start to do was visualize that when she, like when someone would give, like when a black friend would give her feedback, that was difficult for her to take in. She would visualize it as a, like a, a brick or a stepping stone that's in front of her. And she would just have to mentally decide to step over that brick mm. and to keep listening. Like, oh, all of my, all of my frustration, all of my sadness, all of my fear about being misunderstood, it's popped up. It's a brick in my mind now. I'm just going to step over it for now and keep receiving from this person who is giving me feedback that's difficult for me. And so I just think that's really helpful. Like that visual, like, hey, my feelings are valid too. And my actual goal here is to understand this person's perspective. So I'm going to put all my stuff. I'm going to step over it for a second and just keep listening to this feedback, even though it's hard. Yeah, that's such a good piece of advice. And I love that the visual, uh, that visual tool. And I, but I think, you know, one of the things that I hear you say that kind of is like the under, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm getting at. Okay. <laughs> my brain, my synapses aren't firing today. Um, but like underneath all of it is the importance of developing personal relationships with people who look and think and believe and act differently than you do. And because it's in those relationships when we get outside of our, you know, our echo chamber or whatever, you know, we've surrounded ourselves with and we develop those personal relationships with people and, and, and friendships and, you know, kind of like sisterhoods, brotherhoods uh, of people who, you know, make up the beautiful diversity that, that God has created. That is where you're able to have those personal conversations. Mm -hmm. And because it, that tough feedback means more coming from somebody who you love and respect and, and know, and not that that it wouldn't, but it's just like when, you, if it's from somebody, maybe you don't really know very well, then it's just harder. Cause you're like, well, well, they don't know me. And it's just easier sure. for you to like shut it down versus mm -hmm. in a personal relationship with somebody where, and I mean, maybe I'm like totally off base, but I, you know, I feel like that that's like one of the things I kind of hear you say is just the, um, that importance of fostering those relationships. Yeah. And I would add that I mean, there's different ways to look at it too, because in a situation where you're say a pastor, for instance, yeah. um, or you're leading a community, you're leading a small group or, or anything where you're in a position of leadership, you, there might be feedback that you need to receive, but it's not going to come from someone who's super close to you. Yeah, that's true. But if you're shepherding a community, like yeah. there might be voices in that community that are uncomfortable for you to hear, but they're actually saying something that's really important. Mm, yeah. And so I think that it depends on your, you know, the dynamic that you're in and the community that you're a part of. But I would also say a really effective way, like for those who want a crash course and building this muscle, go get involved in solving the problems that communities are trying to solve for themselves. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that is the best way. Like, yes, build relationships and immerse yourself in as much as is possible yeah. in a community that's unlike your own and just observe and feel what it's like to be in those environments and to pick up on things from literally like as a fly on the wall, like I think mm. we can learn a lot from putting ourselves physically in communities that are different than what we're used to. And that yeah. again, will look different depending on where you live in the country and COVID restrictions and all I the know. different things. But I think there are a lot of ways to get at it. And I like to keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great, yeah, that's a great point. And, and super important. I think that that's a good lesson for any leader 
is to be able to receive feedback. And um, I've definitely had experiences uh, just in in my own experiences in organizations where like when you're working for somebody who just does not listen to their employees and what frustrate, like how frustrating that can be. And that's just as like, you know, just every day, the like minutia of the job. And yep. then when you're dealing with a leader who is just like very clearly not listening to uh, members of a different community within their community who are voicing opinions or, or, or voicing concerns or whatever it is. And when that leader has just like completely shut it off, like how that begins to create a, just an unhealthy and toxic work environment and how stressful that can be for people. Mm-hmm. Um, man, mm-hmm. that is so that's so important. Yeah, I think it just goes down to leading with humility. And, you know, some of the best leaders I know are the leaders who who just lead with unbelievable humility and and value others above themselves and know that they are that they are only there to lead um, because of the people who they are leading. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's so, so, so key. Um, so talk about the book, uh, what the you know, how the book kind of came out of this work that you did, what is in the book, why people should buy the book, all the things about the book. Yes. Yeah, so if you are a leader of anything, an organization, a company, a team within a larger company, a community group, the PTA. I wrote this book for leaders who care deeply about racial justice, but they are struggling to pair that um, that passion and compassion with practical, actionable insights in their context. And so in the book, I and this also was born of my frustration as someone who cares about racial justice, seeing like, okay, I have all of these business books that are super practical, but they don't talk about race and diversity enough. And then I have all of these books on race and racism, but you kind of need a PhD to understand them. And I have no idea what this means for how I lead my team meeting on Monday. So I wanted to create a resource that kind of married those two realities. Like, yes, let's understand the big picture um, systemic issues we're facing and how that shows up in our everyday life. And then let's do some practical stuff. What does this mean for our manager, supervisor, one-on-ones? What does this mean for the board that we're leading? Um, What does this mean for the team events that we plan as an organization? I really packed the book with research and um, interviews. I mean, I interviewed over, I mean, hundreds of people at this point um, on, you know, entrepreneurship and diversity and how these things intersect. Um, But I really wanted to create something that broke down the big picture issues and can help everyday people find the solution that works best for them. I do not believe in there being a cookie cutter, Mm. one size fits all solution. I think that what racial diversity looks like or equity looks like in Atlanta, Georgia is going to be different than what it looks like, you know, on a homestead, North Carolina, which is going to be different than what it looks like in Portland, Oregon. It's different for all of us. And so I wanted a book that aggregated a lot of different solutions so people can get creative and try out some new things. So if that's you and you're listening, the book is for you. That is awesome. I cannot wait to read it. Uh, I just think that, I mean, I, I love, uh, I mean, I love everything about you. Um, I just really in particular love your, um, the perspective and the way that you, you talk about, um, just in the, you know, the, the time I've been following you on, on the internets, um, and, uh, what I've learned about you. I love the way that you approach this in such a holistic way. And like you said, that, understanding that this can't, this isn't going to be cookie cutter and that this isn't going to, yeah, like what it looks like in Atlanta is going to look very different from like Des Moines, Iowa. Like it's going to be, it's going to look real different. Like it's just, um, the reality is, is especially within the United States, 
you know, Hawaii looks very different than Alaska and like the communities there and the cultures and the culture of, you know, the deep South is going to be very different than the culture of the far Northeast and the Midwest. It's just, um, that's to me is one of the beauties of our country. But also one of the challenges is how do you, uh, you know, you just you can't possibly create um, systems that are going to look the same and work the same in different areas. So I just Mm -hmm. I love your approach. I think it is just incredible. Um, And I I, I love the work you do. I'm you have a huge cheerleader and fan in me. So um, I love, love, love it. Um, Okay, so before we get to the get to know you round, um, what what kind of is on the horizon for you? Um, Obviously, I know all the homestead stuff. uh, But in a professional sense, like what what do you kind of have as your your goals for the next year, two years? Oh yeah. I, so I, I love this question and I hate this question because part of me is like, I have no idea. I I just spent three years working on this one thing and it's just a brand new baby in the world, the diversity gap book. And so I'll spend a good bit more time talking about this work and I'm really trying to decide what the diversity gap should be next. You know, it's been this podcast now. So it's mostly right now a content platform. And then of course I do some consulting, but I'm dreaming about ways for the diversity gap itself to start to fill that gap um, with some programming um, or with something. I don't really know yet. I don't know. Um, In terms of my daily life, it's definitely all homestead though, if I'm honest. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Moving, finally moving into our home and getting the the farm up and running is what I'm hoping to focus my energy on, at least getting into the spring and summer of next year. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. I think you're amazing. And uh, for the listeners, I will be sure to have uh, Bethany's information as always in the show notes um, and how you can connect with her. If you lead a team um, or an organization, you'd love to have her come work for you um, and work with you. That would be amazing. So I'll have that information along with a link to get her book, The Diversity Gap. And you can get it where, you know, wherever books are sold, basically. Yeah. You know, and all the in all the places. So mm-hmm. um, Bethany, are you ready for the get to know you round? Let's do it. All right. Okay. So uh, I figured I would add this question because knowing you're a homesteader. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned that you have a really big passion for is uh, herbs and um, medicinal herbs. And this is actually something I am really interested in and I know very little about and I'm kind of like trying to like dip my toe in the water to learn more about. Tell me like how how did you get into that piece and like what is maybe the most amazing thing you've learned um, in that process? I arrived at an interest in medicinal herbs probably by way of my husband because he <laughs> is really passionate about health and wellness and and partnering with nature to experience healing. So yeah. I've learned a lot by osmosis from him over the last five, six years. That's awesome. Um, but for me, I just really, what I love about herbs specifically is that they smell really great yes. and that there's such a diversity of ways you can use them. You know, you can cook with them, you can put them in soaps or salves or lip balm. Um, But what really excites me is the ways in which we can really be empowered to take care of our bodies with things that God created. And I just think that's so wonderful. And it's such a, I mean, God clearly loves us, you know, (laughs) in the ways that there are so many healing things all around us all the time. And so I, I mean, I'm like a baby herbalist. I, it started with like boxes of herbal teas and then I slowly got into harvesting from our herb garden and then my borrowed my mom's dehydrator to dehydrate them. So I mostly consume them via like as teas, but I, this week I made like some honey garlic 
cold, like a honey and garlic as a cold remedy. That mm, was nice. And yeah. I gave some to a friend like, Hey, if you're feeling under the weather, take a teaspoon of this. If you have an active infection, take four or five teaspoons, garlic and honey are really powerful. Yes. <laughs> and, and just to kind of wean us off of things that, um, that mean well, but aren't always the best for our bodies. And so that's a little bit of, of what I think about it, but I'm definitely brand new to, I guess, practicing herbalism in any way that might be robust, you know, no, I think it's amazing. <laughs> and it, yeah. And it, I think it's one of those, uh, aspects of God's creation that you can like, you you'll never arrive at learning it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and just continuing to, it's really interesting. I'm actually doing a study in uh, the book of Matthew right now. And uh, we're going through Jesus's sermon on the Mount. And one of the things, you know, when he talks about you are the salt of the earth, and uh, we were having this discussion on like, well, what does it mean? Like you are the salt of the earth. And like, why would he have used such a uh, kind of at the time, a very kind of strange thing? Like people were like, what does that mean to be the salt of the earth? And it was talking about like all the different uses for salt. Like if we really break down all the different uses for salt, um, salt is a preservative. It helps keep meat from decaying. And then one of the other things I thought that was really interesting is if you mix salt and honey, it is it helps with infection and like wounds and it heals. And um, there's a nurse who's in my discussion group. And she was saying that to, to this day, like she works in a hospital and she said a lot of times if we have like an opened wound or a sore um, or some kind of infection that is just not really healing or responding to antibiotics, they use honey and salt, which I think is so cool um, that even mm-hmm. like they're like, they're like, yeah, like sometimes like the old school stuff, like honey and salt or honey and garlic, like it works. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Truly amazing. Um, okay. So I also know you're an avid reader um, and you love to read. Uh, do you have a favorite book of all time or is that like basically trying to like pick a favorite child? <laughs> yeah, definitely like trying to pick a favorite child. Um, <laughs> I will say the book that has been my favorite over the past probably three or four, maybe five years is called Let Your Life Speak by mm-hmm. Parker Palmer. Ooh, okay. I'm writing this down right now. Um, it's six chapters. Parker Palmer is like this 80-year-old Quaker who lives, I think, in Pennsylvania. I think he still lives there. I love learning from from my elders. And yes. so the older, the better is yes. how I tend to feel about it. But it's just, it's amazing. I read it multiple times a year. I buy it for all my friends. Um, reading it was really, it changed my life. And so I, that's probably my favorite. I love that. I had a conversation with somebody who was saying uh, he he kind of studied under uh, Eugene Peterson, like the man who translated the message translation of the Bible and wrote you know a ton of different books. And one of Eugene's kind of like sage wisdom advice was like, read the dead guys, like read, read the stuff that like by the people who have died or like the elders. And um, yeah, I think there's such value in learning from um, learning from people who have who've lived it. Like who've mm-hmm. just, they've experienced all the things and they're all, they're done with shenanigans. Like they're just, <laughs> there's, no, there's no shenanigans allowed. Um, yep, I yep. love that. All right. I'm adding that to my list and I will, um, I'm going to go get it today. Okay. Uh, are you a music person? And if so, what is the best concert you ever attended? Ooh, I... I'm not a big music person, but I do love live music when I, when I go. I would say my favorite concert was Rising Appalachia. Ooh. They're like a folk band. It's a sister duo um, based in Atlanta, but they've traveled all over at this point. And they often do like a Christmas show here in Atlanta. Ooh. And um, and it was just one of my favorites. It was just the best night going and dancing. And I just loved it. I love that. That, that sounds so fun. I also mm-hmm. love live music and have not been to a live show in far too long as, you know, all of the 
COVID things were canceled. And so, <laughs> so yeah. who knows? One day, one day we'll get back out there. Um, okay. And then my last question is the question that I ask all my guests. And that is, uh, Bethany, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? It means showing up every day in service to my clients and community with as much authenticity and generosity as possible. I am, especially as a Black woman doing work related to diversity and race, um, it's really important for me to always be evaluating how this work and these conversations are affecting me as a person just to make sure that I'm well. And I want to bring my best self to those that I'm serving with my work. And so as much authenticity and wellness and care that I can send to myself, the better I'm able to show up for the clients and community that I serve with my work. That's so good. Okay. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. I almost never ask a follow-up question after this question. Actually, I never do. But I want to ask you, like, what does that look like for you when you really take care of yourself like, and, and make sure you're showing up well? Like, is there something that you do just for you that really kind of renews you, rejuvenates, fills your cup, all that kind of stuff? Mm. Honestly, it's many things. I, part of us building the homestead was needing a place that could be a bit of a sanctuary. And yeah. so for me, it's been really important to build an entire life that's full of things that are nourishing. So whether that's, you know, a really great bath or having a really beautiful and creative office space to write and to connect with God and with others um, to the time that I spend, you know, working on my sourdough, that's a new adventure that I'm on. Ooh. You know, like I really, I think it's helped me a lot to have like this entire existence that's not tied to the outcomes I'm generating for other people, but is really just nourishing me, body, mind, soul, and the people that I love the most. Oh, I love that. I love that. Bethany, this was such a a gift of a conversation. Thank you so much um, for being here, for the work you do. Um, Like I said, I'm cheering you on. Uh, I can't wait to watch your homesteading stuff. I can't wait to read your book. Uh, You're incredible. Thank you for being such a gift. Oh, thanks for having me. Friend, I would love to know what you loved about this episode or something that you learned. Find me on social media. I'm at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast when you're sharing the show with a friend. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to check out the archives for past shows featuring so many incredible entrepreneurs, business owners, community leaders who are changing the world. If you are a regular listener of the show, Thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for tuning in week in and week out. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, Overcast, Stitcher, basically wherever you get your podcasts. Click that subscribe or follow button. To click that button means you will never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to just leave a review? Would you take a moment to maybe share one of your favorite episodes with a friend? Leaving a review, sharing the show with a friend, It is totally free for you. And it is the biggest help for me in the entire world. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. It just also helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. As always, this show is produced by the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.